Good morning. It's good to see you on this uh, beautiful summer day. The Lord's given us to be together as His people. It's good to be back fresh uh, as early as this morning from Baltimore. Uh, several of us had a great opportunity the last couple of days to serve alongside of our partner church, Jesus Our Redeemer Church, there in Baltimore with about 200 volunteers this past weekend serving in about 17 different locations throughout the city of Baltimore, uh, doing many different things, a lot of service-oriented work, uh, working alongside of nonprofit organizations, seeking to help certainly bring peace to the city of Baltimore, uh, but we know uh, peace defined by the gospel ultimately. And uh, it's been great opportunity. I know many of us will be sharing a little bit about what we've done uh, over the last couple of days in the future, but uh, it's good to be back. Several of our folks are still there this morning worshiping with Jesus Our Redeemer Church and uh, also Jesus Our Redeemer as well. Um, so anyway, it's been good. It's been a good weekend. Good to be back. Uh, it's good now to turn our attention and thoughts to God's Word. Let's pray as we consider His truth today. Father, thank you for now this time that we have to open your word so we can be fed, so that our souls can be strengthened, our lives can be transformed, your church built. Father, would you expose in our hearts sin so that we could repent? Would you expose areas of weakness so that we could be made stronger? So, Lord, would you now come and, and, and give us ears to hear so that these things can happen to your glory. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can hear you speak to us because we have the inspired scriptures. Lord, would you do that now? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we, when we come to Matthew chapter 26 verse 57, and as we saw last week, even in the arrest of Jesus, one of the ways that we could summarize this, this account, what's going on here with the arrest and betrayal uh, here in this account, is this, everything was wrong, and yet everything was right. Everything was wrong, yet Everything was right. We have an illegal act, an illegal act leading to the execution of an innocent man, yet at the same time, this very act is what accomplishes the salvation you and I need. The Jewish people had always prided themselves on their practice of fairness and justice. It's even clarified in the Old Testament law. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 and following. We read there, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Jewish people prided themselves on texts like these, that they were a people of justice, and yet demonstrated right here in our text today, centered upon the, the person of Jesus Christ, we have what 
is in reality a horrific act of injustice. And yet, as only providence would have it, it was this very act of injustice that Jesus endures that ultimately results in divine justice being satisfied. Only God could do this. The injustices that Jesus endured, he endured on your behalf so that divine justice could be satisfied and your sins could be paid for. It's a beautiful picture. It, it, it boggles our minds when we think about this. But that's exactly what we have. Everything was wrong and yet everything was right. So I want us to look at this text today in verses 57 through 68. As Jesus stands here unjustly condemned, there are a couple of things, a couple of truths that that emerge from this scene that I think are helpful for us, helpful for us to reflect upon, helpful for for us to see and think through in relationship to to our own walk with Christ. And if you're here today as a non-Christian, for your good so that you can hear the truth of what Jesus has done and believe in him and be saved couple of things that we need to see about this scene because as we saw last week Jesus is betrayed by the hands of Judas he's betrayed he's arrested he's brought into this this illegal courtroom if you will this trial that he's he's now undergoing and there's a couple of things that we see emerge from this text the first point that you should take note of today is that Jesus was silent through most of his trial and his silence ultimately communicates something. It communicates his actual plan. His silence communicates his plan. Once Jesus is arrested, he's, he's brought to, to Caiaphas, the high priest, actually, most likely, to his house. Now, there's a whole series of events that take place here, a whole, whole series of events that take place that Jesus undergoes throughout this, this, this time of trial. He goes to to the high priest, and then he goes to the Roman officials, and back to the high priest, and he's back and forth, and, and he spends basically the entire night on trial. And it's clear from this account that the Jewish leaders were behind his arrest because when he arrives at Caiaphas' house, we're told, verse 57, they'd seized Jesus, brought him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. They were waiting on him. This was, a, this was a plan that had been carefully thought through and carefully mapped out and it brought him to this point. It's very clear from the get-go that the entire trial was designed, it was designed to bring and establish a guilty verdict and not to seek the truth. In fact, it was an illegal trial on multiple levels, not to mention that it was conducted in the middle of the night to try to hurry this through. intent here was to illegally try a man who had not even been indicted and the only evidence that they could present was the evidence of two false witnesses friends the injustices at this trial are so many it's hard for us to even conceive and understand but it happened it happened and again the one thing fueling it all was this compelling desire to put Jesus to death and amazingly Jesus, for the most part, we will get to verse 64 in a moment, but for the most part, he remains quiet through most of the proceedings. 
And one could say that part of his silence was due to the fact that, that he certainly wasn't going to participate in this kangaroo court, so to speak. I mean, it was an illegal trial. He knew all of the, the cards were stacked against him. He knew all of this was so wrong, and, and most of his, a lot of his silence had to do with that. But, but there was a deeper reason and, a, frankly, a more powerful reason that, that informs his silence. I want you to notice two critical observations about his silence here. Because his silence speaks loudly. What is he communicating by remaining silent? I know that sounds like a contradiction, right? What's he communicating in his silence here? Well, he's communicating quite a bit. Number one, he is communicating a submission to his father. He's demonstrating his own willingness to submit to the will of his father. Remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just last week. Text right before this, there in verses 36 through 46, Jesus is there praying. He, he says to his disciples, I'm going to go pray. Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And he goes and prays, and he says, Father, if this, if this cup can, can pass, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's feeling the weight and the burden of, 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 of bearing the guilt of humanity. He says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, you remember what he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus here in his silence, in this illegal court proceedings, is, de- is demonstrating his unwavering commitment to obey his Father's will. Absolutely committed to submitting to the will of his Father and carrying out the work of redemption. Absolutely committed to bringing glory to his Father. Not because his Father was some kind of evil, evil deity that, that delights in seeing harm brought to his Son, but because both the Son and the Father were working together to bring, abra- bring about hope for humanity. In many ways, Jesus' silence was a silence of trust. He was trusting his Father, the Heavenly Father, throughout this terrible, terrible ordeal that he was encountering. He was trusting his father even in the midst of the greatest trial of his life. Trusting his father even to the point of death. Because he knew that obeying his father's will was that which would ultimately bring glory to his father and would accomplish the salvation this world desperately needed. One of the things that you could take away from that in just as a point of application for you and for me, many things you could take away from that, but one of those things is, is that even in the midst of significant pressure and oppression, persecution, trial, God's way is always the best way. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you think, it's about what the Lord thinks and what He has called you to endure on behalf of His glory fulfill his purposes. God's way is always the best way. Jesus knew that. 
even when the pressure mounted and when he was feeling the weight and the burden of the sin of humanity upon his shoulders and he was praying in the garden, he knew that God's way was the best way. And he remained obedient even to the point of death, as Paul says in Philippians 2. It demonstrates his submission to his father, but a second point that it communicates, his silence, is it demonstrates his love for sinners. Think about if you would have been there that night. It's always dangerous to say, right? Think about that. Think if you would have been there with Peter, following from a distance, sort of in the shadows, kind of peeking around the corner, or if you would have been Peter. As you would have continued to observe this illegal trial to, as it began to unfold and all the accusations brought against Jesus, surely you would have been screaming on the inside, Jesus, just tell them this isn't so. Speak up. Defend yourself. Say something. Do something. We don't know what was going on in, inside of Peter's heart, but, but we can imagine if, if we'd have been there, we'd have been thinking these kinds of thoughts. And yet, Jesus remains silent. Friends, the reason Jesus remained silent in light of all the injustices he was facing was this. He was resolved to go to the cross for your sins. You need to see that, that his silence is actually a loud proclamation of his love for you. He remains silent because he remains determined to go to the cross and pay the penalty for sin. And if you know much about the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 ought to be ringing in your ears about now. Isaiah said, hundreds of years before this event happened, he said about the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was so committed to save his people from their sins that he's willing to face enormous mountains of injustice to his own person, so that you could be rescued from yourself. Isn't that amazing? He was willing to face this injustice against himself so that he could save you from yourself. His silence is a saving silence. Peter, after he got himself back together, or the Lord put himself back together, after this encounter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, said this about Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Brothers and sisters, this silence is a saving silence. It demonstrates the... the, the the, the resolve, the, the commitment Christ had to obey his Father, but it also communicates clearly and loudly to us that he loved you so much he was willing to take this upon himself for your sake. 
his silence communicates his plan. But there's a second observation we see in this text. And this is actually when he s- begins to speak. It's what I call it, his, the way I put it is that his confession now in verse 64 communicates his position. He was silently communicating his plan through his willingness to go through what he's enduring. But now as he speaks, he, he's now communicating who he is. We see that there in verse 63 and 64. We're told, and Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. When that statement was given to Jesus, this was in essence swearing him in to to respond. And especially when a high priest would add the statement by the living God, at that point he's making the most solemn charge possible and if a person is placed under oath by the divine name he must respond and so Jesus responds and in verse 64 in this brief response that Jesus gives he powerfully and beautifully communicates exactly who he is He breaks his silence in verse 64, and when he does, he holds nothing back. It's a brief response, but he says everything he needs to say, not only to confirm who he is, but really to seal his fate. Because once he says what he's going to say, that's all the high priest wanted. Three things that he confesses in this brief response. Number one, that he's the Messiah. That's what they were wanting to know in verse 63. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Jesus is, is, is not, this is not, sometimes in, in our English language, you could take that um, uh, in, in many different ways, but, but Jesus is in essence affirming this. He's saying, you said so, what you say is true. He's, he's saying, you have said what is true. You are acknowledging what is true, and Jesus affirms that. He says, you have said so, but he goes on. Mark's account makes it all the more clear when when Jesus says, I am. You remember what what many scholars call the messianic secret. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he often would conceal his identity. He would do something and he would say, don't tell anybody I did that. Or he wouldn't expose himself to the to the fullest he wouldn't he for example he, he was not going around using the title messiah in many different ways and in 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 certain encounters he would he would affirm it as such but but he was not going around with his messiah t-shirt on saying i'm the guy he was waiting he because he knew that 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 if, if he heralded himself as messiah before the proper time that people would misunderstand him and the nature of his mission they already did, and he didn't want to add to that. There are many other reasons as well, but that's part, and part of what's going on here. Many saw Jesus simply as a political revolutionary, but that's not what he was. And so he affirms now, at the proper time, in the proper setting, that he is in fact the Messiah, the one that had been promised from long ago. Friend, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't just say, 
I'm the Messiah. He goes on to confirm something that's, that's much, much more than that. He, he says, secondly, not only am I Messiah, but I am I'm the ultimate judge. Look at verse 64. He says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes two Old Testament texts here to, to further establish who he is. He, he says, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm so much more than that. Not only am I the Messiah, the Son of God, but one day you will see me glorified with my Father in heaven, returning to earth as your judge. He, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies of your footstool. This text clearly points to the glory and the position of, of the Messiah as judge, as ruler. So you see the picture. As Jesus is standing in this human court, being judged in an illegal fashion, in an ungodly fashion. He's standing there being accused of things he did not do in, in, in the way they were putting it. And this human court acting as judge over him, he, he says, friends, there's, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when I will be seated on the throne and you will be answering to me. That's what he's saying to them. The very one who appears now to be a helpless victim of a clearly biased and illegal court will be the very ones that Jesus will judge in the future. We're going to let that be a lesson even for us today. You might, ge you might judge Jesus as a lunatic or discredit him as a fool or just be apathetic towards him. But those that act in judgment over Jesus, you need to know this. When you act in judgment over Jesus or you come to your own conclusions as to who Jesus is, you're actually going to answer to him one day. You can think what you want to about Christ, but you will submit to him one day, either willingly or unwillingly. You will call him Lord. You will, you will confront him as judge. You, you will be confronted by him as judge. You have to give an account to him. Certainly that should inform how you and I live. He's judged, and then thirdly, he's Lord. second text that Jesus points to here comes from Daniel chapter 7. There in Daniel chapter 7 we read this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is in essence saying, I'm the one Daniel spoke of. I'm that one who will have dominion over all things. I'm the conquering king who will rule forever and ever. I will have a kingdom that will never end. And Jesus, in essence, responds, you think you have power, Mr. High Priest. I sit at the right hand of God. I'm the one 
that rules the universe. I'm not just some petty revolutionary that you think that I am, but I am the son of the living God. I am the sovereign ruler of the world. You see what Jesus is doing here? He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He says that, he affirms that, he clarifies that. But he goes further than that to acknowledge his lordship, even over the very ones that think that they have control of the situation. Notice the response of the high priest. Verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is that that struck you? Friends, one of the things you need to understand is that the high priest did not misunderstand Jesus. He understood exactly what Jesus said. He understood his Old Testament. And he understood when Jesus quoted those verses and claimed deity, claimed lordship, claimed the fact that he's Messiah, they didn't misunderstand that. They didn't execute him on a misunderstanding at the end of the day. Certainly they misunderstood all that, the, all that, all that came with what being the true Messiah meant. But, but they, they heard him loud and clear at this point. And they mocked him. A couple of things to take away from this. Number one, don't ever think that you can overthrow the cause of Christ. What we have right here is Jesus in a moment of weakness and vulnerability. Being condemned and indicted and ultimately crucified by the hands of unjust men. And if you would have been one of the disciples that day, remember all of them scattered, like what I called them last week, a bunch of scared dogs, something like that. They're gone. Peter's the only one sort of lurking at a distance. Had you been one of them, you would have thought, what? what's going on? But the reality is, is that even when, when things seem at its darkest for the kingdom, God is perfectly fine. His plans are unfolding just as he has determined. This has not caught him off guard. In fact, this is the very thing that he has ordained so that you and I could have our sins forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to him. Don't think that you can ever throw the cause of Christ no matter what it is. Don't, don't fall into that kind of trap and thinking and also, notice, notice here that back in verse 57, it, it said that those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and were, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And then you see them later on there as they begin to mock him. This is Jesus against a majority here. Don't think that, that standing with the majority is a safe place, even a religious majority. Don't, don't think that standing with the majority is, is a safe place because it is often the most revealing of places. Especially when you think of things like Jesus in Matthew 7 when he, when he says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but uh, narrow is the one that leads to life and only few find it. 
seemed at this point that the majority was against him and the majority was in error. Friend, when you consider these things, if, if you're here today and you've never bowed the knee to Christ, continue to live separated from him, you've never trusted in him, you've never sought him for salvation, kind of walking along, kind of maybe, maybe you have a belief in God. <coughs> maybe you believe Jesus lived. <coughs> maybe you don't. Well, you can, can't deny the fact that he lived. Even, even uh, honest atheists affirm that he lived. But whatever you think about Jesus, when you're confronted with the facts that we have here in his silence, but even in his, in his confession, as he affirms that he's the Messiah, as he affirms that he is the eternal judge, and as he affirms that he is Lord, in essence affirming that he is God. You have one of two options. You can remain as you are, or you can bow your knee and trust in him. Get this, the one who is Lord, the one who is judged, the one who is the ruler of the nations coming again to judge the world is also the one who did not raise a defense so that he could ultimately go to the cross and save you from your sin. He did not raise a defense for himself so that he could provide a defense for you. And the scriptures simply tell us that if we would trust in him and believe in him, we would be saved. We would be forgiven. Your sins would be forgiven and your life would be transformed. Maybe you're here today and you've, you've never trusted in Jesus. You've never prayed to him. You've never sought him. You've, you've never trusted in him as your savior. And this is why he's doing what he's doing, so that he could save you. So that he could bring you to himself because we know that, according to the scriptures, we know that, that God is a holy God. He is the creator of the universe. He's, he's perfect in all his ways. He gave us even a perfect law to live by, and every single one of us have broken his law. Every single one of us have turned our backs against our creator and rebelled. All of us are sinners. And because of that great rebellion, because of, of our disobedience and sin, we deserve to be judged and condemned. We deserve to be separated from God forever. And what Jesus was doing here, he was executing the plan, the only plan, the only way that could bring you back to God. Through his perfect life. He never sinned. This, that's why this is unjust. He didn't do anything wrong. But yet he willingly endured the injustices that he endured so that your sins could be paid for. Because we know that God doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug. The, God demands justice. It must be satisfied. And so... This is, this is justice being satisfied even in the midst of injustice. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he, he hangs there so that your sins could be forgiven, so that the indictment against you can be removed. And you say, well, how does that affect, how does that, how do I get that? Trust in Christ. You believe in him. You embrace him as your own savior. You, you put all of your hope, not in what you can do. You put all of your hope, not in what the world has to offer, but you put all of your hope and your trust in what Christ has done.
Friends, that is the hope that we have. Jesus was seized. He was betrayed. He was seized. He was arrested. Like a a dying animal surrounded by a flock of vultures. Suffered at the hands of an unjust court. But even so, was bringing justice to bear in a greater court. For your sake. For my sake. Isaiah predicted it perfectly in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He endured what he endured so that you could be transformed, so that you could be delivered from the bondage of sin that you and I lived in, so that you can have peace with God. Just think about that. And think about the fact that while the high priest and the elders and the scribes, the Pharisees and all the leaders, in their mocking and in their slapping and striking him, in this unjust trial, they thought he was worthy of death. Friends, the Bible makes clear that he's actually worthy of discipleship. He's worthy to follow because he's the Savior of sinners. You may mock him. You may deny him. You may think that this is just absurdity. Well, the Bible actually talks about that in 1 Corinthians where it says that he was a stumbling block for the Jews and for the Greeks, it's foolishness. Foolishness. Friends, but I'm here to tell you that Christ is Savior. He is Lord. And he is the one that you will stand before and give account to. So you can deny him You can mock him, you can ignore him, or you can believe in him and submit to him and have your life changed forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this text and what it reveals. We thank you for the hope that is established through this suffering ministry that Christ endured on our behalf. Lord, even in those moments of his silence as he endured the injustices. Father, we know that you are telling us loud and clear that you love us so much. So much so, Lord, that you are willing to go to a cross and die for our sins. 
Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can be reminded that through Jesus' silence and even through his communication, that we understand that there is a plan and that we understand that there is this man who is Lord, God in the flesh. And putting those together, Lord, we see this wonderful demonstration of your great love for us, that you, the perfect God of all creation, loved us so much that you were willing to humble yourself and become a man and suffer at the hands of men so that we could be delivered. God, my prayer today is that for anyone here that has never met Christ as Savior and Lord, that you would search their hearts today and that you would give them eyes to see Christ for the truth of who he is. And that you give them a heart that longs to know him and trust him. To believe in him. To be saved by him. To walk in his life. God, would you bring about that glorious work of redemption in the hearts of people even now? Father, for those that have trusted in you and are even walking in you, Lord, would this yet be a reminder for us of what Jesus endured for our sake, God, that we would be humbled and that we would be thankful that he took our place. Lord, it is us that deserves to be on trial. It is us that deserves to be condemned and indicted. It is us who, who deserve to be cast away. It is us who deserve death. But Lord, we thank you that you were willing to take upon yourself what we deserved so that we could know you and walk with you and rejoice. God, would you move in the hearts of people this morning? Would you help us to respond today? Even now, Lord, would you help us to respond to you in faith? Respond in hope, respond in joy, repentance. Father, you know the hearts of your people. You know the hearts of everyone in this room. You know the hearts that, that are longing for you. God, you know everything about us. God, would you change us because of what we've heard today for your glory and for our everlasting good. We do pray this in Christ's name. Amen.